such a great hymn of consecration, reminding ourselves that we indeed do belong wholly to him. And even though we were created by him, his blood purchased our redemption, and therefore we are his. It calls us for us to surrender ourselves, to recognize the truth that we are not our own, and to offer ourselves in worship, adoration, and devotion wholly to him. As we open God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we ask this morning that you would please teach us from your word. I pray that you would cause all hindrances to be removed and that you would enable me to speak clearly what your word says. I pray you'd help me to teach accurately that only that which your word says will I teach. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to have receptive hearts, that we would desire to live more holy for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, you don't need to be told, but it is unfortunate that Christianity is awash with false teaching. False teaching influences pulpits, music, and doctrine of evangelical churches all over the world. And I believe that the false teaching that is most on the ascendancy within the evangelical world and those that most uh, susceptible to draw people away is that what is called the prosperity gospel. The peddlers of this aberrant theology teach that it is God's will for every Christian to be healthy and wealthy with no sickness, no suffering, no pain, and no financial difficulty to be found. Therefore, they teach that all someone needs to do if they want to improve their situation is to give a seed gift of money to the, that preacher's ministry and God will bless them and their lives will continue to improve. But this wreaks havoc on believers and leads many astray. Evangelical African pastor Conrad Mbewe gives one of the reasons this theology is so destructive to faith. He says, this theology is like giving children sweets before a meal. You spoil their appetite for that which is truly nutritious. The Bible is primarily about salvation from sin and being sanctified into the image of Christ. We ought to be admiring those, who, uh, those among us whose godliness shines like the sun and new, noonday strength. But we are fast losing that view Christians are instead admiring the few individuals with big houses and flashy cars and clothes, even when such individuals are living in sin. But false teaching like this is not new. It's been around for a long time. In fact, it was there in Israel in Jesus' day, and Jesus confronts it in the passage that we'll look at this morning. And I encourage you to turn there to Luke chapter 20, verse 45, if you're not there already. If you... Uh, need a copy of God's Word, there's one there in the pew in front of you, and you'll find our passage this morning on page 1046. In our passage here this morning, Jesus was days away from dying on the cross. His life is almost at an end, and because his time was short, he needed to give a final assessment of what his view 
namely what God's view was of the Jewish religious establishment and its leaders. He had just spent two days going back and forth with the Jewish leaders. We've looked at this through Luke chapter 20. And at the end of those two days, it's been abundantly clear that in the back and forth between Jesus and the religious leaders, that the religious system, the Jewish leadership is spiritually bankrupt. They don't understand God's word. They don't know the Lord. And they don't accept his son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus renders a final verdict upon the Jewish nation and its leadership. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' condemnation of the Jewish leaders takes up a whole chapter, Matthew 23, known as the woes that he gives, woe to you, woe to you. Luke has already recorded something similar back in Luke chapter 11. But here in this final week, the Passion Week of Christ, Jesus gives a denunciation of the leadership here as well. Luke abbreviates it here for his, his audience, but it still packs a punch. And so let's begin by reading the text before us. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 20, verse 45, and we'll read into chapter 21, verse 4. It says, In the hearing of the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress all of its truths upon our hearts. This morning, in this passage, we are going to see how the two parts of Jesus' warning will protect us from being deceived by the hypocrisy of false teachers. Friends, we are in danger of being deceived by false teachers in our day, and we need to heed Jesus' warning here that he gave to his disciples that we too would not be deceived. And there's two parts to this warning, as I indicated. And in the first, Jesus warns us by highlighting, number one, the signs of heartless hypocrisy. The signs, the indications, the characteristics of heartless hypocrisy. And he gives us in verses 45 through 47. Jesus here has turned from the high stakes debate that he was just in with the, the leaders to focus on his disciples. Look at it in verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. Now again, the others were around. They heard what he was saying, but his focus now is particularly on his disciples. He's not doing this because he wants to hide his criticism. It's not like, hey, let's be quiet. I'm going to actually speak poorly of those guys over there. No, clearly everyone could hear him. He was boldly declaring the truth. And that truth would get him killed just a few days later. But as he boldly spoke to his disciples, he was telling them to beware of the scribes. Notice the key command here, verse 46. Beware. Beware, they are to be on watch. They are to be on guard. They are to pay attention, be on high alert. There is something deadly 
about these men, the scribes, and I believe he calls out the scribes here in, as, a, as a representative of the larger Jewish leadership and the whole Jewish religious system. There's something deadly about this that they must be watching out for. Now, the only reason there's a warning, the only reason he says beware is because there is a tendency to, be, to believe the lie. There's a tendency to be deceived, and Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be deceived. It's like the frequent notices you hear that the IRS puts out about scams to watch out for, phone scams, email scams, mail scams. You need to issue the warning because every year, millions of dollars are stolen by people that try to impersonate the IRS. Now, if those scams were not believable, they would not need to put out all these warnings. But it's because they are so believable and people are so susceptible that they have to say, watch out. Same is true here. Jesus says, beware, because there is something that we must be on the lookout for. Now, we may be thinking, we're going, why in the world would anyone follow the scribes? Can't they see through the thin veneer? Couldn't they see how wicked these guys are? Why would they fall for such horrible leaders? It's easy for you to say, 2,000 years removed, but we need to remember that in that day, those men were among the most respected among their country, among their society. They were not only seen as the most powerful, but also, get this, the most godly. And therefore, they held great sway over the people. And this was especially true for the scribes, because, see, the scribes were supposed to know the word of God. They were to interpret and explain God's law to the people. And so the people had a Bible question, they would go to the scribes. The scribes would tell them what God's word said. And that carries great weight. They were supposed to be experts in God's will for his people. And so they were the teachers of God's word. These men had great spiritual influence, and so Jesus wanted his disciples to be prepared. He tells them to beware. But why should they watch out? Well, it's because they're hypocritical men. They're hypocritical leaders. And he gives us six signs of their hypocrisy. So let's look briefly at these six signs of the heartless hypocrisy of these leaders. First sign is that they like ostentatious clothing. They like ostentatious clothing. Look at verse 46. Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. This was an outer garment, a stole in the Greek. It, it's it's used in Luke to describe the robe that the father put on the prodigal son when he returned home. It's a word that's used to describe what the angels are wearing at the tomb of Jesus. It's a term that's used to describe in Revelation the robe that believers receive when they are glorified. This was a most likely a beautiful outward garment and it was likely expensive. And these scribes like, notice it says that they like or want to walk around in these long robes. They were ostentatious. They were seeking to draw attention to themselves by their clothing. They wanted people to notice and they wanted people to be wowed by what they had on. But the second sign of their hypocrisy is that they love public praise. They love public praise. Look at the second thing Jesus says, and lo they love greetings in the marketplaces. They love greetings in the marketplace. Now, some later Jewish writings indicate that, that people were required to give formal uh, congratulatory greetings to Bible teachers, to teachers of the law and rabbis when they saw them in public. We don't know if that was a requirement in this day, but it's very likely. And they 
would love going around. I'm going to go walk through the market today. I'm going to go go through the public place where there's going to be the most people. And I'm probably bound to hear a bunch of congratulatory and praiseworthy remarks, some greetings. These greetings were not just a simple, hello, hey. This is a one in which you'd stop and you would, you would thank the man for what he's done and you'd, you'd go over the top in trying to praise him. They loved the public praise. The word here is phileo. Phileo, meaning love and affection. They had an affection for these, to hear these greetings. It was something that their hearts deeply craved. But they loved something else, and that goes, brings us to sign three. They loved prominent religious positions. They loved the best seats in the synagogues. They loved sitting in these prominent positions. Now, what are these, these best seats in the synagogue? The, the, the Greek word is literally like the first seats, the seats that are first. And we don't know exactly where this may have been, uh, but we have to assume they are near the front. They're not going to be where they're going to blend into the back. They want to be seen by people. And very likely they could have been sitting near the ark where the scrolls were kept in each synagogue. So everyone would see that they sat near the law of God. They sat near the scriptures. They were the important ones. But wherever it was, we get the point. They were the most prominent, the most honored seats in the house, and they loved those positions. They had a strong desire and affection for these prominent places. This enhanced their reputation that they were the most godly people in the building. But there's a fourth sign of their hypocrisy. They love prominent social positions. Not only do they love prominent religious positions, but they love prominent social positions. They love the places of honor at feasts, the end of verse 46 says. They love the places of honor at feasts. This is exactly what Jesus warned against in Luke chapter 14, verse 8, where he says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. And yet these are the men that love those places of honor. They craved it. I imagine that the hosts probably knew who they were inviting and probably reserved certain seats for these men so that they could have their loved seat because I'm sure that if they didn't reserve the seat, that the host would get some sort of critical remark from these men that would not put up with not getting their prime position. Again, they wanted to be the most important person in the room. They wanted to be respected for their position. Now, up to this point, Jesus is speaking about how the scribes are crafting the reputation, right? These are all public things. What they wear, what, how they're greeted, where they sit in the synagogue, where they sit in, at feasts. They're crafting the reputation for what other people see and what they say. Now, someone could look at those, though, and go, okay, so it's a little stuck up, but what's the big deal? They're not hurting anyone. And that's where Jesus next reveals that there's something more insidious to these men. Look at verse 47. Who devour widows' houses. Who devour widows' houses. Now, let's just think about the, what the word devour means in English, and it means the same thing in the Greek that's behind this English word, and it means to consume, right? If you've nibbled at your meal, you haven't devoured it. If you've inhaled so there's nothing left on your plate, you've devoured your meal. You've consumed it completely. In ancient times, widows were among the most vulnerable of society. Being a woman, their security came from their husbands. And therefore, when they died, they were left destitute if they had no sons to take care of them. And therefore, widows could easily be taken advantage of. However, this is 
why the Lord stated that his will, what was his desire for widows and his, among his people? The Old Testament's very clear that he, the Lord himself, would stand up for the orphan and the widow. He cared for the vulnerable in society. He cared for those who were weakest, and he would stand for them. And therefore, he had, there were laws that were set up in the Old Testament that Israel as a nation was required to follow God's heart and to care for the widows and to care for the orphan, to care for the alien, the, the stranger in their midst. Israel was to model God's heart for widows. And yet here we see that what are the leaders of Israel doing? They're fraudulent leaders and they're preying upon the very ones they're supposed to protect. They were experts in God's law and yet they were blatantly disregarding it. They were supposed to communicate God's will to his people and yet they direct, directly disobeyed it themselves. Now, scholars don't really know exactly what devouring widows' houses mean. There's been many proposals put forward about how they would uh, seek to take from widows' inheritances. They'd try to sell things and keep it for themselves and all sorts of proposals have been put forward. But I believe that at best they're guesses. And we don't really need to know exactly how it was done because the point is clear that these men took advantage of widows so much so that what they had to live on, their very house was consumed by these men, was taken away by the scribes. Widows were left destitute after the scribes were done with them. Those scribes were absolutely heartless. And this wickedness with the veneer of godliness could not go on any longer and therefore uh, Jesus will deal with it as we'll see. But let's look at number six, the sixth sign of their hypocrisy. Jesus gives it in verse 47. It says, and for a pretense, make long prayers. That is, they exaggerate their piety. They exaggerate their piety. They, they want to put on a show that they are the most godly ones, and so they made their prayers long. They prayed for a long time that people would go, wow, they, they must know the Lord. They, they, they love spending time with the Lord. They, they, they just will pray so long. Again, they wanted people to think there was no one godlier than them. Jesus' words in Matthew 6 says that when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. These men did these long prayers in public and people just thought, oh wow, they, they just devote so much time to God. In that same passage, Jesus went on to say, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gent as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And so here, I think they combined both of these practices. They do it in public so that people will hear them. And they do many words. They have long prayers, thinking that they'll be heard or they'll be respected. But notice that Jesus says that they explicitly do this for pretense. It's all a show. It's not genuine love for God. They had ulterior motives for why they prayed. In other words, what it looked like to the people around was, was totally different on the inside. They were hypocritical in their praying and Jesus here calls them on it. Now what stands at the core of these behaviors? What's at the core of these characteristics, these signs? At the core of it, it's a love of self, isn't it? These men loved themselves. They did not worship or love God. They worshiped and loved themselves. In that sense, they were idol worshipers. 
rather than God worshipers. Now you say, but yeah, isn't that what all sinners do? Why would Jesus call them out in particular? Don't all sinners love themselves instead of God? Yes, but what made the scribes and other Jewish leaders their sins so egregious was that these men were using the worship of God to cover up their idolatry and to convince people otherwise. They, of all people, should have known better. They should have known what God's word says, that it condemns such behavior, but they cultivated it instead. And so these corrupt leaders wouldn't last. God would have the final say. In fact, God the Son would now issue a verdict on them. Look at the end of verse 47. They will receive the greater condemnation. And here we see their fate. It is greater condemnation. Jesus indicates that these wicked men will receive more judgment, stricter judgment, more wrath, more punishment for their deeds. Well, more than who? We have to ask. It says greater condemnation, not just that they'll receive condemnation, but they're going to receive greater condemnation. Greater than who? Well, it reminds us that all those who live life their own way, those who fail to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ are doomed to an eternity in hell. This is the bad news that the Bible gives us, that because of our sin, because of our disobedience to God's law and his perfect standard, we all fall short. And therefore, we all deserve the just punishment for our sins, eternal condemnation. And yet, Jesus says that that is what everyone deserves, but these men will receive greater condemnation. Friends, we need to be reminded that even though we all deserve hell, even though we all deserve to be punished for our rebellion against our holy creator, that there is salvation. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you have been living life your own way, you've been calling the shots, you've been setting the agenda, you haven't cared what, the, what God has said in his word, you haven't cared about what he says for your life and how you're to live. I want to tell you that the good news this morning is that there is life that is found in Jesus Christ. That you can repent and believe today and have assurance that you will spend eternity, not in hell, but in heaven, where life is, eternal life, the Bible calls it. And it's found in Jesus Christ. And you can have that assurance today. If you don't know what that means, if you need further help with that, please come down and talk with me after the service. Talk to somebody here today before you leave that you might know life and not experience the condemnation that is due to you. These men had many opportunities to repent, but here they are at the end of Jesus' three and a half years of ministry and Jesus says that they will receive the greater punishment they knew more than the average unbelieving Gentile. They knew more than the average unbelieving Jew. They should have loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They should have loved their neighbor as themselves, As the word says, they should have cared for widows in their midst. They should have recognized who Jesus Christ was and bowed before him in adoration. And yet they refused to do any of this. Why? Because they loved and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And therefore, the fate of these men and the rest of the Jewish leadership, Jesus says, is severe punishment. Now, this condemnation wasn't going to come right away. Lightning wasn't going to come from heaven and smite them right there on the spot. 
In fact, if you, if you fast forward to the end of the week, let's say, oh, Saturday, while Jesus is in the grave, these men probably thought that they got off scot-free. They probably thought they were on the winning side because you see that guy who claimed to be the Messiah, he's in the grave. We killed him. But Jesus prophesies, as we'll look in coming weeks, here in Luke 21, that there was judgment that was coming upon these men and upon the religious system of Israel. Temporal judgment would come at the hands of the Roman army in AD 70, but they would ultimately receive ultimate judgment at the end of time when they would be thrown into the lake of fire, as Revelation makes clear. Judgment would come. Now, we need to pay attention. Why, why do we need to see all these signs of hypocrisy? As I alluded to earlier, we need to see is because heartless hypocrisy shows up in every age. It has shown up in every age of the church, and false teachers have infiltrated the church in every age. And so even a few years after Jesus, the apostles warned about false teaching entering the church. And some of the same characteristics showed up in their warnings to the churches that they wrote to. 2 Peter chapter 2, 1-3 through three says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Do you see these same qualities? This love of sensuality, of, of what the flesh desires, of prominence, of, of, of money, and, and therefore it's displaying that money, the greed. Ultimately, these men don't know the Lord. Now, I've got other passages in my notes. I just encourage you to write them down. We don't have time to, to read them this morning, but Jude 16 uh, Jude gives the characteristics of these, these uh, men as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Another list of qualities. And Philippians chapter 3 talks about these false teachers. Now the qualities that Jesus lays out in our passage this morning may not look the same in every age. In other words, you may not find people today, false teachers that walk around in long robes, or obviously they're not loving the best seat in the synagogues. We've got to culturally transfer the principle into our current day. But they exhibit, I believe, some of the same characteristics, and this is particularly true in the line of preachers who promote what is called the prosperity gospel. Again, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel, and it claims that God's will for you is to be wealthy and healthy. These preachers tell their listeners if they give money to the ministry, then God will bless them. And as a result, these prosperity preachers have raked in millions of dollars. But make no mistake that like the scribes in Jesus' day, the false teachers of today also live only for themselves. They are modern day examples of heartless hypocrisy. We see this even in their ostentatious clothing. And this isn't going to be a full expose on false teachers' clothing, but in recent days, a, an Instagram account has popped up called Preachers in Sneakers. Okay, Preachers in Sneakers, stick with me. Um, and this guy takes pictures of prosperity preachers in their expensive shoes and then puts side by side with a screenshot of the page where that shoe is sold. 
And he doesn't give a judgment on it. He just puts the picture up. But he's simply exposing the small piece of the lavish lifestyle of these men and women. Most of the sneakers are hundreds of dollars, over $500. Many are one to $3,000 for rare Nikes, Gucci, Yeezy shoes. He's profiled preachers such as Judah Smith, T.D. Jakes, John Gray, and Stephen Furtick. And you could look, in, I'm sure, into every article of clothing that these preachers wear, and you're going to find the same thing. Ostentatious lifestyles, desiring to draw attention to themselves and a love of the expensive, of what money can buy. Fundamentally a heart of greed. Of course, we can talk about the private airplanes of false teachers, of Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar. Time and again, you see these prosperity preachers asking for money from people and then spending it on themselves. Of course, these preachers are driven by a love of praise, public praise and attention. They love the promotion of themselves and of their ministries. Their ministries are all about themselves. They say they're preaching Jesus, but they're really preaching themselves. They claim God is working through them, but really they are stealing the limelight from the Lord. And everywhere they go, they sit in the best seats. They are kings and queens of their own empires. And what's so unnerving about these teachers is that they feign great piety and closeness to God. They're claiming to speak for the Lord, telling others what God is pleased with. They're claiming to teach the word. They pray publicly. I don't know if their prayers are long, like Jesus says here, but they're at least trying to show their godliness through their public display of piety. Friends, their hypocrisy is apparent. What makes all of this so wicked is what it does to the people that sit under their teaching. They destroy vulnerable people. Now, they may not devour widows' houses in particular, like the scribes did in Jesus' day, but they have emptied the pocketbooks. They have emptied the savings. They have put the poor person in great amounts of debt for their ministries. And we're going to look at these victims more in depth in just a minute, but the point I want to make from this examination is this. Friends, you must beware that there are people that are out there on the internet, on TV, on the radio, that claim to speak for God, that may even be on your Christian TV station or radio station, but they are not promoting the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and you must beware. We must heed Jesus' warning. They may talk about God's blessing, and they may have the bling to back it up, to say, look, God's blessed me, he can bless you too. They may tell you how to be healthy and wealthy, and certainly God does want his best for you, but friends, the hard truth of the scriptures is sometimes God's best for us goes through the path of suffering and pain. Wasn't Jesus an example of that? The prosperity gospel discounts and, and hides all of that. And so we must not be duped we must know that these men and these women do not know the Lord. They instead are only preaching the, themselves. They do not know the risen Lord. They, so I exhort you, do not listen to their messages. Don't just say, oh, I get a little encouragement from them. Do not allow this false teaching into your ears and into your heart. 
Jesus gives us some clear signs. We need to beware. But there's a second part to Jesus' warning that we have here in this passage. First, he showed the signs of heartless hypocrisy. But secondly, he gives, tells us the victims of heartless hypocrisy. And this is in chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And with this, we skip over the chapter break. And as you can tell by my message, grouping these together, I believe that this chapter break is unfortunate. I believe these passages, these two paragraphs go together. As I've said earlier, the chapter divisions are not inspired. These were given uh, several hundreds of years later after the scriptures were written. They're helpful, but they're not uh, coming down from, from heaven that this is where the Bible is to be broken up. They're meant to be more of a helpful tool for us as we look into the word. But I believe that this unfortunate chapter break has caused people to disconnect these two accounts. And therefore, this opening account of chapter 21 is divorced from its context. And so first, let's just kind of look at what these verses say, and then we'll look at what they mean and what we can glean from them. Verse 1, it says that Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Uh, Gospel of Mark says he sat down. He's uh, just instructed about the scribes. He sits down and begins to observe. He goes, people watching. And he watched what's, what's going on, and here he sees the rich come in and drop in their gifts. They, no doubt, probably, you could tell they're rich by their clothing. You could tell they're rich by how many coins they dumped into the treasury box and how loud of a, of a noise that it made. The, it says that they were putting their gifts into the offering box. This is, uh, some translations have it as the treasury. The Mishnah tells us that these are, were trumpet-shaped receptacles where the 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 skinny part was up top and the large part was at the bottom and so it would, would, would prevent theft. And these, there's 13 of these, they say, throughout the temple precincts so that people could donate to the work of God. And these offerings were used for any number of things. We don't know exactly what these offerings were given for at this particular time. But the point is that these offerings supported the larger religious complex, the Jewish religious complex. And the first group that Jesus sees here is the rich. Again, they probably took their cues from the scribes, looked very similar to the scribes, I believe are identified um, with the scribes here by their, the identification of the rich because we know that the, the long robes and the things that the scribes have, they were also rich. But there's a second character that Jesus introduces us to, and this is in verse 2. He says, And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. As we said earlier, widows were among the most destitute of society. They had no social safety net. And so just being a widow, period, she was on the lowest strung of the strata of society. But Luke notes that she wasn't just a widow, she was a poor widow. That could have been indicated by her clothing, by the tatters that she was wearing. We don't know, but it was clear that she was poor. We don't know her age. She could have been young, middle-aged, old. But the point is she has nothing, close to nothing to her own name. Close to nothing that she owns. And so she walks up to the receptacle that the rich have just loudly and uh, prominently dumped in their coins and now the widow comes up and she drops in two small copper coins, otherwise known as lepta. Lepta were small coins, they were 
about uh, one centimeter in diameter, so they're just tiny little things. And they're estimated, their value was estimated to be between one one hundredth or one one hundred and thirty second of a denarius. A denarius was what was paid for a day's laborer. He would work all day, he would get paid a denarius. These one lepta was about one one hundredth of that. So it's a very small amount. After witnessing these two parties, the rich and the widow, Jesus then makes a statement in verses 3 and 4. He says, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now these, these verses here and this talking about what the widow gave have been used down through the centuries to teach the virtues of sacrificial giving. The explanation goes that this widow, uh, with this widow, Jesus provides a counterexample to the scribes and the rich. They all gave this way, but you followers, you disciples are supposed to give this way. They are the negative example. The widow is the positive one. And for most pastors and commentators, this interpretation is simply assumed. And no doubt you've heard a message or something about the widow's might. That God accepts even the widow's might. It comes from this story. But I have problems with that interpretation. And there are several problems that I have. And I'll try to make my case for why, what I believe to be the best way to read this account in light of the context. I may or may not convince you this morning, and that's okay. But I encourage you to think it through and reason with me. I believe that this passage does not teach the gifts, uh, the, 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 the virtues rather, of giving sacrificially. But it gives an example of one of the victims of the bankrupt Jewish religious system that Jesus says they devour. So here's a few points for us to consider here. First, there is not an agreed upon consensus for uh, what the principle we're supposed to glean from Jesus' comment is. In other words, if you took this as a positive example and like, no, Jesus is teaching us to give and you go, okay, so what principle does he want you to take and to live out? And there, I could give you a whole page of suggested examples of what exactly Jesus is trying to teach because they're trying to guess at what should be gleaned from his statements. Was he teaching that in order for our giving to count, we've got to give every last penny? You could certainly derive that from this. Was he teaching that we need to give until it hurts? Well, maybe, but does he really say that? Was he saying that we need to give a certain percentage? Maybe, but how can you really gather that? What, what percentage would that be even? The principle for application, in other words, is far from clear if you take this as a positive example. Again, the most simple is we're supposed to give everything we own. Give our last two dollars, our last two pennies that we have to live on, and that is what God commends. But I don't think that's, that's what Jesus is trying to say. But the second point for us to consider is not only is there not a consensus on the principle that we're supposed to glean, but secondly, I would contend that Jesus does not commend the widow. Jesus does not say she did a good job, in other words. He simply makes a statement. It's, a, it's an indicative statement. I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. 
For they all contributed out of their abundance, and she put out, uh, she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. And in one sense, this statement is non-controversial. It's a, it's a very ordinary statement that the rich put in a lot of money, but it, in comparison, it wasn't that much. This lady put in everything that she had, she put in more than all of them. That very principle can be found even in, in secular literature. I believe Aristotle gave that, that principle. And he doesn't say that she had more faith. Some, some people will point to that. Well, this lady, she stepped in with faith and more faith, but Jesus doesn't really commend or talk about her faith. He's not afraid to talk about faith. There's many times he commends people for their faith, but not in this case. In fact, he doesn't say what God's opinion of this woman is. He only makes a statement about how much was given. Now, why did he say that she gave more? Well, because she gave all that she had to live on. Every last penny. But there's a third thing for us to consider here, and that is, I believe that for Jesus to commend and say good job to a lady who gave everything that she had, a destitute widow to give her last pennies runs counter to some of his other teachings. We've seen in Luke, many moons ago, in Luke chapter 6, that uh, Jesus confronted the Pharisees on how they interpreted the law because they would interpret the law in such a way that they would be rigid in their interpretation and it would cause others to be harmed. And Jesus says, listen, the overriding principle is not necessarily strict obedience to, to people's detriment. It is to be obedience, but there is to be a larger principle of caring for people. There's to be mercy that is to override even some of the strict adherence to the law. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus excoriates the Pharisees for saying, when they are told, when their parents uh, confront them on, on, on money that they need to live on, supporting their, their, their parents, they say, oh, that money is Corbin, which means, Mark tells us, it's given to God. Corbin means it's, it's been already been given. It's been offered to the Lord. Therefore, I am sorry, I've got nothing to help you with. And Jesus condemns them for such things that they've failed to care for their parents. They failed to care for the basic needs of their parents when they've, meanwhile, given this money to the Lord. Jesus says that to give your money to God so that there is none to take care of your family members, no matter how pious it looks, is disobedient to God's law to honor one's father and mother. But there's a fourth thing for us to consider for this, and that is the context. And I believe the context is what really drives us to consider that this is a negative example. This is a further exhibit A of what Jesus is trying to tell us, not a positive example here. Again, in chapter 20, verse 47, a couple of verses earlier, Jesus just said what? He said that these scribes devour widows' houses. And now he speaks of a widow who puts in all she has to live on. They're, they're talking about those whose livelihoods is all consumed. And then he gives an example and points to one in which that was taking place. And then what happens after this passage? You can just read the heading in your Bible. Jesus foretells destruction of the temple. He's going to talk about how this religious system that, that so devours widows, he's, there's judgment that's coming upon this system. Condemnation, example, judgment. The context is about the corrupt leaders, their system, and their temple. And a lesson about sacrificial giving seems foreign to this context. 
Jesus said a lot, especially in Luke, about how to use one's money and where to invest one's treasure. But this is an odd place for Jesus to bring it up and to teach on it and for Luke to insert it. And therefore, I believe this passage is meant instead to be an exhibit A in Jesus' case against the religious leaders for their heartless devouring of the most vulnerable people. They did not care about widows. They chewed them up and they spit them out. They happily watched as poor ladies like this one walked through their precincts, dropped in the last money that they had, and went home to die or to be a beggar. We must see here that Jesus is trying to highlight that false hypocritical teachers are heartless. They do not care for God's people. And this is also true of modern day prosperity preachers. They are charlatans and they wickedly use God's name and God's word in order to fleece the masses. Like the scribes of old, they leave people destitute of their money and they don't care. In his book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, Costi Hinn tells the story of a couple who were battling with infertility. And they were promised that if they gave to this certain evangelist, that God would bless them with their desires. This couple cleared out their life savings, and yet no baby came. Thankfully, God helped them to see the error of this teaching, but the damage was done. Similar, similar stories could be told the world over, but it's especially tragic in the poorer countries of the world, in Africa and Latin America. People are absolutely destitute and they believe that if they give to this certain preacher or evangelist that, that their lives, their fortunes will change. They believe that this man is a holy man and if they give money to him, he'll pray for them and that good things will happen to them. This happened to one woman named Everlene in Nairobi, Kenya. She didn't have any money to pay for her uh, uh, to, for basic necessities and she was destitute and she heard of this, this pastor that had, could pray powerfully and so she, she, but she had no money and so she borrowed money from a friend that friend didn't have any money so they took out a loan in order to give money to this friend and she was told that she would retur get return on her money in a week but the miracle never came and the unpaid interest on the loan continued to mount and she's in a worse position now than she ever was. Again, this story could be told a thousand times over. Poor people going deeper into debt because of false teaching. One lady was confused that she was tithing, giving to God, giving as the preacher was telling, but she still didn't have enough money at the end of the month. You know what the pastor said? He says, it's more important to give to my ministry than it is for you to pay your rent. That sounds like devouring houses to me, causing people to not have enough to live on, all for the sake of God's ministry. As the African pastor Conrad Mbewe says, that I quoted earlier, he says, this teaching has become a religious pyramid scam with the so-called men of God reaping a fortune while their blind followers are getting poorer. Friends, we need to be clear that just like the scribes of old, Modern-day false teachers prey on the most vulnerable. They promise God's blessing if, they, if people give to God, but it really lines their pockets and it destroys the most vulnerable, the poor. And it's this kind of ministry that Jesus condemns. And we need to be aware that we do not become trapped ourselves, that we do not, oh sure, our bank accounts may not be emptied, but we aren't supporting by views or dollars ministries that would do such a thing. 
Friends, I pray that we will be able to heed Jesus' warning this morning about false teachers and that we would not be deceived by those who claim to speak for God but whose lives do not line up to the standards of God's word. Friends, this is why the qualifications for elders, for pastors, for deacons are written the way that they are. They explicitly say that the men that are to lead God's church are not to be lovers of money, not to be greedy for dishonest gain. It's because of these very things. Things that Jesus saw in his day, things that the apostles saw in their time, and things that we still see today. Christ does not want such men or women, I might add, leading his flock. And so we want to stay faithful to the scriptures. We want to follow God's word. And we need to hold all leaders, all teachers of God's word accountable. And this is why James says in James chapter 3, verse 1, that not all of you should become teachers, my brothers, because there's a greater condemnation, there's a greater accountability that's coming for those who handle God's word. That's exactly what Jesus says here. These false teachers will receive the greater condemnation. May God protect us from such false teaching and such hypocrisy. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God, we thank you for your word that is clear, but our hearts grieve, Lord, that there are those who are out there who claim to speak for the Lord, and yet they are deceiving many. They are pulling them astray, using your words in order to enrich themselves. Oh God, we trust you for you to bring an end to such wicked corruption. But we ask for ourselves that you would help us to stand firm and true upon your word, that we would not be swayed or deceived, that we would stand upon the truth of your word and that you would help us to remain faithful to it. Oh God, may you help us to put away all signs of hypocrisy in our own lives, that we might live faithfully unto you and to give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.